Hello, loyal listeners, and welcome to another action-packed episode of OK So, a French-Algerian philosopher, author, and journalist, and winner of the 1957 Nobel Prize in Literature. No, wait, that was Albert Camus. This week's guest needs no introduction, although I'm going to introduce him anyway. He's Rick Mandler, SVP of Strategy and Operations at Truex, longtime Upper West Sider and neighbor of the pod, and an all-around great guy. Rick and I spoke about his youth in Queens, how he transitioned from the law to media, and how an uneasy beginning turned into an incredible professional partnership. As always, I beseech you to follow us on Twitter at Podcast OKSO and give us five tar- stars on iTunes if you like what you hear. Okay, so welcome everyone to our most recent episode podcast here, Okay So. With me today is Rick Mandler. Rick, welcome. Hello there, Jeff. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. How's it going, man? It's going very well. Uh, all, you know, all things considered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So how is your... I mean, I think I'm in week six of quarantine here. How's your quarantine going? Uh, it's been going okay. Uh, to, to sort of fla- flaunt my privilege a little bit, the smartest thing I've done is I ordered an exercise bike from Amazon um, and it came in pieces and amazingly I was able to put it together, notwithstanding uh, the fact that <laughs> I, tools and, and Rick should not go together. Yeah, that was, a, that was probably a workout in and of itself. It, it, it took it me hours and hours, but I did get it together and it is absolutely keeping us all a little saner because, you know, if you don't burn off the what my mother would call spilkus, if you don't burn off the nervous energy, <laughs> uh, you're in trouble. Actually, my grandmother would have called it spilkus, not my mother. Yes, my, mine too, yes. My mother would have called it uh, agita, probably. Ah, there you go. Um, so, and now all four of you are kind of back under the same roof, or no, C is in Brooklyn. No, uh, so my oldest is working at ABC News and living in Brooklyn uh, and commuting uh, at five in the morning to be at their desk at six in the morning, well, which is unreal, which is unreal. Uh, but, but unfortunately it was kind of inevitable, inevitable. They seem to, they have something which is probably COVID-19, a mild case and they're doing okay. But, uh, you know, they're the quarantined on their own now. They're quarantined on their own. And, and it's just three of us here on the Upper West Side. And so you're sticking it out on the Upper West Side for now, as am I. Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I, I do have a, another place to go, but it's not wired. There's no broadband. There's one bar of self-service. <laughs> and, oh, my God. And so it's not really practical if for someone who's trying to work at home or for my, my son who's here uh, trying to finish up the semester. So it wasn't really a, a, an option. So, yeah, we are going to be in the Upper West Side and the flag has been planted. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is what it is. So let's actually rewind. We're talking about now, but let's rewind all the way to the beginning. So where did it all start for Rick Mandler? Um, I was born in uh, Bayside, Queens. And we, my family lived in an apartment in Queens until I was six. And right around my sixth birthday, we moved to Oyster Bay, Long Island, which is where I grew up. I went you know, to high school. Um, and, uh, and it's funny because, um, even though I grew up and had all of my formative years on Long Island, I never really liked Long Island. I was always itching to get back to the city. (laughs) And so what, what are your earliest memories of Queens? 
I mean, do you, what do you think of when you think of Queens? Um, what do I think of when I think of Queens? Um, you know, it's funny. I do have vivid memories. My grandmother lived in the same apartment complex that we did, my mother's uh, mother and father. And, and, stay, and they were there um, through, I think they moved to Florida when I was in early high school. So we were going. We would go back to Queens to see them all the time. So I have, you know, like all of the sort of early memories that get fuzzy were reinforced by coming back to the same apartment complex. Um, the the thing that I most remember was climbing fences. That I would like literally when I was a kindergartner, I would climb and over chain link fences. And when I got to Long Island and did that once, people looked at me like I was a hooligan. <laughs> I was like, but in Queens, this is what we do. <laughs> In Queens, we climb fences on Long Island, I guess. And if my mother had ever seen me climbing a chain link fence, she probably would have completely flipped out. But that was like what we did. We ran, you know, from place to place and and we always took a straight line. And we, if there was a fence in your way, you climbed over it. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my kids who are growing up here on the Upper West Side and are kind of notoriously risk averse, I feel like would never ever climb a fence. And I, I, you know, I often wonder what they would do, even if they figured out how to do such a thing. You know, it, it's funny because when I got to college, um, I felt like the kids who had grown up in New York City were just older, had more worldly, had a more worldly perspective. And, and I really felt like, wow, I got to catch up with those guys. Yeah, I talk about it a lot. It kind of cuts both ways, yeah. right? They're both um, sort of very, very unimpressed by things um, no matter how impressive or unimpressive they actually are. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the thing about growing up in Manhattan is you, if your family can afford it, you get exposed to just a tremendous amount of stuff. And, you know, a lot of that opportunity doesn't come to kids until they get to college. And so, you know, it's like you can kind of come into college going, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, that's no big deal. You know, whereas some kid from Iowa, wow, this is all fresh and new. And just going back to your grandparents for a second. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a very, you know, um, and my dad is much, much older than you. He's probably 20 or 25 years older than you. But that's very much the way, like, my parents in sort of a half-step generation down grew up, right? Everyone lived right near each other yeah. um, kind of all the time. What did, what did your grandparents – so were, were your grandparents born here? Uh, yes, they both were. Um, but their parents were not. Um, you know, so it's interesting. My father's parents both passed away very young, uh, and I really didn't know them. My, my father's mother, before I was born, my father's father, maybe a couple of years after I was born. Um, so my grandparents were my mother's parents. And my mother and grew up in Queens, not in the same area where I was born, but in, a, in, a, in Queens, surrounded by her mother's family. So my, my grandmother was like one of 12. And, oh my gosh. And I think, I think there were 13 born, but 12 survived. And a large number of them were all within walking distance of everybody in Garden Bay Manor in Queens. And so my mom like grew up, you know, walking around and seeing all of her aunts and having milk and cookies at one aunt's house and, you know, chatting with, you know, and had, had, you know plethora of cousins. And so the idea for my mom of living far apart from her mom uh, was really alien. And so, you know, they settled in, um, in Bay Terrace in Bayside, much to my father's chagrin, I think. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and so was moving to Oyster Bay controversial? Yeah, I, I think it was. I, I, you know, it's funny because I never really put my finger on this. And now I'm going to have to ask my mom what motivated it. I, they definitely wanted a house in the suburbs. Um, and they had done well with some investments. So they actually had a down payment. But I wonder if also it was for my dad, it was getting a little distance from the rest of the family. But um, still close enough to go back yeah, on those no, half a visits day. on the weekend. Well, it, it sh- if there's no traffic, it should only take about a half an hour. But my grandfather refused to drive on the Long Island Expressway. He was comfortable <laughs> taking Northern Boulevard all the way from Queens <laughs> to, to Oyster Bay. And so it took him a lot longer. <laughs> Oh my God. Yes. I would imagine probably twice as long. Yeah. Um, and what did your, what did your parents, what did your parents do? Uh, my dad was in the Shmata business. He sold kids pajamas. He was in sales, um, but, but kids pajamas, um, mostly for a company that was called Bates Nightwear, uh, which was then per- ultimately purchased by Gerber because Gerber, somebody at Gerber had the genius idea that, Hey, you know, we have we have a really well known kids brand, it, you know it works for baby food. Why don't we slap it on a couple of other things and and do like a line extension? Um, and so Gerber bought um, a whole bunch of kids apparel businesses and and ran them into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, naturally, uh, and, did he work in the garment district? Yes, in he did. The city? Yeah, yep, he absolutely did. And he commuted from Oyster Bay on the train every day with uh, he had his commuting buddies. I'm calling them commuting buddies and not friends because they commuted every day with each other. They played a vicious game of gin rummy every day on the train <laughs> for money. My dad fleeced them because he was a good gin rummy player, but I would not say that they were friends. Like they didn't, they never hung out on the weekends. <laughs> they never like went to a movie together. <laughs> it, it was a little weird. And, and my brother actually commuted with my dad for a year and said it was, it was just strange seeing my dad in that, in that environment with those guys cracking dirty jokes, playing cards. <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, my dad drove to the city because I, you know, um, there was no real train option and the bus was, you know, the bus would take four times as long because it went all the way around mm-hmm. the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, but every time I went to work with my dad, I saw this whole other side of him that yeah. we just never saw at home. What we saw was the guy who was exhausted from a day, sit down to eat dinner and then hang with us for a half an hour. And then we all went to bed. You know? Right. Yeah. When you, when you're a kid and you get access to your parents in their work life, it's very eye opening. Um, and, and you know, and, it, and maybe it, it'll be interesting, you know, my kids are older and out of the, and mostly kind of out of the house or, you know, in, not in my face the way little kids would be. Um, but with all this working from home happening, I wonder if uh, barriers are being broken now for kids to see what what you know work Jeff or work Rick are like. I have read a couple of articles like that where, and I, I can tell you my kids' experience at this point is that they're they're thrilled to have me home in whatever capacity that is, and so it's interesting to bring them in. We had virtual bring your kids to work day yesterday, mm. um, which was you know funny. My kids poked their head into a couple of calls, and we took a picture. Um, but yeah, it's, I completely agree. There's, there's going to be something that comes out of this, which is kids having a kind of a deeper understanding of who their parents are as well-rounded people. Or, or maybe, in, you know, a, a profound contempt for like, so it's a bunch of people when talking to each other all day, really? <laughs> How hard is that? <laughs> let's, let's see you, let's see you learn algebra. That's hard. 
<laughs> or teach it. Yeah, right, teach, teach it to it. me. Yeah. Uh, even worse. So, um, grew up in Oyster Bay. Where did you go to school? Uh, Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Not to be confused with Wellesley or Wesleyan, Ohio, or any of the other ones that all have the same name. But a, a very liberal arts school. So tell me what your experience there was like. Yeah, very, very li- emphasis on the liberal. Um, and we, I used to joke that it was, uh, so I graduated in 83, but I used to joke that uh, our little campus was the, you know, was in a time bubble that this, and it was still the 60s. Yeah, never left the 60s. Yeah. Um, I loved it. It was a great experience for me. It was an opportunity to try pretty much anything I wanted to try, right? The school was big enough that they had a lot to offer, but small enough that if you wanted to do it, there was no constraints. So I, you know, I was, I wrote at the school newspaper. I was the photo editor. I took music classes, even though I have absolutely no music ability. I got involved in student politics and student government. I, you know, like I was a resident advisor. I mean, I did a little bit of everything. And I barely graduated with a major because I took so many different kinds of classes. I was a psych major, which will come as no shock to anybody who knows me. But it was really because, yeah, yeah. It, it was really um, because I had the most credits in psych. And so, I, you know, when I looked at the, my senior year and said, hey, I need to do something to graduate, psych was the easiest way to do it. Oh, so you just pulled in your 12 credits in your last semester yeah. as a senior. But I could have voila. just easily have been in, uh, well, I had a lot of credits in economics and I had a lot of credits in uh, poli sci. So I could have gone. None of this. Could have gone. Yeah, none of this is a surprise. So it could have gone a bunch of different ways. But uh, it turned out psych was good and, and, and had, you know, the most useful class I took in college for my career probably was statistics for the social science. So. Okay. So we're going to jump there in a second. Did okay. you do anything interesting in a lab or anything like that that satisfied? Did you do like an interesting lab study? No, I was social psych, um, and I didn't write a thesis. Uh, the most interesting uh, piece of research we, I did with a, my best friend um, from college, we did uh, a really cute little study on cold reading, which was you basically talk to somebody for a minute or two and then figure out how, to, um, how, to, how they will answer a list of questions, right? So... It's sort of like the salesperson's skill. You come in, you meet somebody, you read them, you figure out how you're going to sell to them. And there's a body of psychological research about cold reading. And there are definitely people who are very good at it, and there are people who are very bad at it. Um, And so we did your classic little study where we had a bunch of different people do cold reading of a bunch of different other people. And then we tried to tease out what made the people who are good at it good and what made the people who are bad at it bad. Um, and it was a, it was a cute little, uh, it was a cute little study. The, the upshot of it was that some people tried to figure out how different you were from them. And then whatever answer you were going to give, you would give, you would say, they'll give the other one. Some people tried to figure out how similar you are to them. And if I would say this, they would say this too. Um, and of course, you know, everybody is self-selected to be in, in the Wesleyan campus. So it was easier than normal. And did you decide to go to law school right away or did you do something between college and law school? I did something between. I did the obligatory backpack through Europe uh, and then I ran out of money and I settled on a friend's couch in Washington, D.C. And I got a job working in the lobby office for a California public utility, Southern California Edison. And, uh, and basically, I just you know tracked legislation for them. So I would read the congressional record. I would look for committee hearings. Um, you know. I, it was 
sort of your basic grunt work in Washington, D.C. And I did that for a year and, um, and lived in a group home, you know, a house right across the street from the, the, uh, the Supreme Court, which was very funny. <laughs> um, and, uh, and went to law school a year later. So I worked in D.C. for a year and then went to NYU for law school. So you came home. You went to law school. Well, you leave law school. I didn't come home. And you're like... No, no, no. I, I, I challenge that. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> tell, me, tell me more. I had never lived in New York City. Home for me was Oyster Bay. And I, there was mm. no way I was going back to live in Oyster Bay and commuting into law school. So the, my first year in law school in a dorm at NYU was the first time I had ever lived in New York City. And I've lived there ever since. Oh, that's interesting. Did you find an apartment after that? Uh, I was in NYU Law School housing for three years. Oh, so you spent the you spent all three years in a dorm. Yeah. So that's super cool, and that meant you lived in the village in like yes. the middle '80s, which must have been insanely interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I walk through Alphabet City now, and I you know like Tompkins Square Park, and I'm like, oh my god, like like there's moms in strollers and kids running around, and you know even at midnight, you know it's it's perfectly safe and well lit and lovely. And it was a war zone, right? There were there was a, a tent uh, city inside Tompkins Square Park when I was in law school, and you know if you went there at night, you were going to get rolled, right? There, there, it was just a bad scene, and now it's it's completely gentrified. Yeah, I mean, I find there are very few corners of the city uh, at this point in time that, and it's on, undergone such a tremendous change in the last forty years. Um, that there are very few corners of the city now that that are like that. Uh, I'm sure you can find them. I don't. Yeah. I don't, I don't wander out of the Upper West Side all that often. Yeah. Um, well, but, C, lives, um, yeah. C lives in Bushwick, right? Which, when I was in law school, would not have been a neighborhood that I would have expected my oldest child to live in. But that's where they. Uh, my brother lived there for a couple of years in Prospect Lefferts, and yeah. my sister lived in Bed Stuy for a little. While. I was still a little edgy when my sister lived in that side, but yeah, there's, there's almost crown Heights. Plenty of people live in crown Heights. Now there's, there's almost no part of the city that's sort of off limits from a, can I live there perspective? Which of course is a mixed blessing, right? Because uh, it means that the, there are people who have lived there their whole lives for whom it's become too expensive. Yes. Which is, I mean, a whole other, we could spend a, probably 60 minutes talking about yes. the repercussions of gentrification largely. Although I will say one of the funniest sketches on the Eddie Murphy Saturday Night Live when he came back was uh, Mr. Robinson yes. living in a gentrified neighborhood. Um, that was very funny. Uh, so after law school, you kind of didn't become a lawyer. Well, I did briefly. Um... I uh, I did another obligatory backpack through Europe. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> why not? Right? Uh, and and I also uh, that, so I did a little of that, and I also worked for the New York Times for a summer, which turned out to be formative. Um, so I didn't take the bar like everybody else did did, did after uh, law school. I worked for the Times, and I did, did a little trip, um, and then I clerked for a federal judge uh, in Newark, New Jersey. I would commute from Brooklyn uh, into Newark every day for the Honorable Leonard I. Garth. And uh, he was uh, an appellate judge, federal appellate judge. And so he had chambers in Newark, but we would go to Philadelphia to actually hear the cases. And I did that for two years. And then I worked at a law firm for a little over a year. And when I was at the law firm, uh, 
as a junior cub lawyer, I, uh, the law firm represented ABC News, and ABC News uh, received a libel suit, and it ended up on my desk. Um, and it was basically a, a piece by John Stossel um, and tw- in 2020, and uh, it was about people who fake or exaggerate injuries and sue the government. And one of the characters in the book was, well, the, 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 I, you know, I can remember this so vividly, right? So one of the characters in the piece was this guy, Joseph Engelman of Borough Park, Brooklyn, <laughs> who claims he has a permanent limp from falling on some defective New York City subway steps. But when he walked for our cameras, the limp was hard to see. <laughs> and, and so Mr. Engelman sues them. You know, the, the case comes to my law firm, the partner catches the case, he, you know, he throws it to the associate and says, you know, take a look at this. I, you know, I go in to talk to the people at ABC News, I meet the producer, um, and I say, do you guys have tapes of this interview with this guy? And they say, sure, and they show me the tapes. And literally, they sat down with him, and he explained how he fell on the steps, and then they said, okay, please show us your limp. And he walked up and down the block, and they recorded him. And he wasn't limping. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I made a a motion to dismiss and attached the tapes. And I said, basically, judge, he's not limping. (laughs) Right. That's it was, you know, no act of genius. And uh, so we filed the motion to dismiss. And the other side calls my phone rings. It's the other attorney. And he says, hey, look, if you run the piece again and at the end of it, say he thinks he is limping, we're good. And I'm like, you, let me get this straight. You want my client to air the piece that you say defames him again and just at the end of it say he thinks he is limping. He goes, yeah. And I said, and then you'll dismiss this, the lawsuit. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, remember, this was, uh, when was this? Um, 89, Late 80s, early 90s. Probably 89 yeah. or 90. I said, what, did your guy forget to set his VCR? And he goes, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I, I was a hero. I made a libel case go away in record time. And they ran the piece again in the summer, which they would have done anyhow. And at the end of it, Hugh Downs, who was then one of the two anchors of 2020 with Barbara Walters, says, and for the record, Mr. Engelman believes he was limping. We'll be right back. <laughs> and, uh, and so they were like, you're the best you know, thing since sliced bread. We got to hire you. And they hired me. <laughs> and so that's how you got in-house at ABC. And that's how I got in-house at ABC. Yeah. And I worked as a lawyer at ABC for a year or two and then business affairs for four or five years, which is almost a lawyer, but not quite. Um, and then because I was interested kind of as a side project, I built a internet radio business plan and pitched it to the guys at ABC Radio, and they hired me, and it, which was really weird because they said, you're hired. And I said, I'm what? And they said, you're hired. We're going we're gonna to green light this. We're going to do it. You're hired. I'm like, but I'm a lawyer. And they said, not anymore. <laughs> and, and it's been not anymore ever since. That's amazing. And so we're going to fast forward a bunch of years here. That's, uh, let's talk about... Um, your relationship with Pooja and how you guys kind of connected and became this sort of powerhouse team. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Pooja Mitha, the president of Truex, but formerly my, my boss or one of my two bosses uh, at ABC when she was running digital. I, I jointly reported to Pooja and to Jerry Wong. Um, 
So also, by the way, for the record, while we're talking about it, also a very strong, wonderful woman. Yep, absolutely. In her own right. Um, absolutely. So, uh, so I was working at ABC uh, Sales, um, mostly in digital, but um, also sort of playing a strategy role uh, with Jerry. And uh, Jerry pulls me into her office one day and says, "Congratulations! I've I've hired a new head of digital sales. Her name is Pooja Mitta." And I'm like, oh, okay, great. And she goes, and you're going to work for her. You're going to report to her. And I say, oh, okay. And I go back <laughs> to my uh, my desk and I whip up LinkedIn and I look at it, at Pooja's um, background. It's really impressive background. And then I notice when she graduated college and I think, uh-oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was eight years old when I started practicing law. <laughs> <laughs> and and I have to say, and this is to my great discredit, uh, I really had a lot of problem with that. Uh, so the first six months, Pooja and I were were very careful with each other. We had a good working relationship right from the start um, because we tend to see things the same way. Um, but we were very careful. Uh, we ended up having a dinner in San Francisco when we were both on on the road for different reasons together and a bottle of wine was drunk and we loosened up with each other a little bit. And then like a month or so after that, uh, Pooja was about to do something that would have meant like, which which would not have been good. Like she was about to step into a minefield and I don't remember what it was anymore, but I was like, no, don't do that. (laughs) And she's like, why? It's like, that's a mine. Don't step on that. Let me, and I like explained it to her and she said, Oh, you're absolutely right. Thank you. And I think, uh, I turned around and walked away from that conversation and thought, oh, I really care about what happens to Pooja. And she turned around and walked away from that conversation going, oh, Rick cares about what happens to me. And, and we've been you know, as thick as thieves ever since. And which is ultimately how once your guys' careers ended at Disney and she landed at Truex, you guys landed there. So, yeah. And, and you know, I've seen you guys work in action for the time that I've been in Freewheel probably a little bit before that um and i you know sort of firsthand is it is amazing i how two people can just click sometimes you know even if it takes that initial six month period um but you land it at truex and now you guys are working together again take a minute and talk through what you guys are trying to do at truex so um you know truex is an interesting and difficult company to describe and i have a somewhat idiosyncratic way of looking at it but let's try it out so Truex is basically a platform whereby we have integrated into the players of pretty much every premium video, long-form premium video um, publisher. From that platform, we can then build products. The first product that we built was what we call engagement ads. And these are interactive ads. Um, which take me back to one of my first digital jobs um, where I, when I was running Enhanced TV, interactive television at ABC. Um, and the premise of, of an interactive ad is that if you can get people to actually engage with the ad, it can be far more effective in delivering a marketing message or encouraging a consumer to, to take a, a desired marketing action. And define engagement in this context. Is it simply you know, did your mouse roll over it or are you actually physically interacting with the ad or any of any or all of those things? So for us, um, a completed engagement ad is requires two things, 30 seconds of your time, 
and at least one click uh, or one of a, of, a, of a narrowly defined set of actions. Sometimes it can be a mouse over depending on how the, actual, the ad is built, but it's basically one click. Um, and we encourage people to, to um, choose the engagement ads, but we give them a choice. And typically with long form video, the choice is, hey, you can watch four or five ads or more in a break, or you can engage with this one ad. It's up to you. And we call that a value exchange, right? You, in exchange for your time, 30 seconds and one click, we will give you uh, a lower ad load. Um, and, and so that's, that's the first product that we launched and it's the bulk, uh, nearly all of our revenue from that. Um, but it's really done well and it continues to grow. And the, from, a, from a publisher's perspective, it's great because we source demand for them and give them a lower ad load. Um, and from an advertiser's perspective, it's great because we provide a more effective um, unit for them to use and we, walk them, we help them build the creative or we build the creative. Um, and from a consumer's perspective, it's great because you're seeing fewer ads. It sounds like a win-win. It's a win-win-win. Right? And so, and then you moved on to. So then we launched, we're, we're in the process of launching a second product, which we call Uplift. Um, and, you know, because we were charging a, a, a premium for the engagement ad, obviously we had to prove that it was worth it. Um, and so the same way we gave people a choice to engage with an ad or get, and get a, a lower ad load, we also asked people to answer a single question in a survey in exchange for getting a lower ad load. And the, and the survey is basically put yourself on the uh, purchase funnel. Are you, when you think of brand X, are you aware, are unaware, aware, uh, familiar, likely to purchase, you know, et cetera. Put yourself on the, on the purchase funnel. And because we're integrated with the ad server and we're integrated with the, the player, we know whether you've been exposed to the ad or not. And so we can quickly in stream come up with uh, large numbers of control and exposed and compare and see how the ad, the engagement ad is moving you down the purchase funnel. Um, and it's interesting. Some ads, uh, you know, move you from unaware to aware. Some ads move, you know, depending on the brand, some ads move you from considering to likely, you know, it's fascinating when some ads don't work at all. It's fascinating to see different creative have different impact um, on people's place in the purchase funnel. And then one day we kind of like, you know, like the light bulb went off with our head of research, which is, hey, we know we're doing this for engagement ads, but it doesn't have to be engagement ads. We could be doing this for good old fashioned digital video ads. And that's the product we're, uh, we're, we're in the process of launching. We call it Uplift and it measures brand lift in near real time uh, on an always on basis, really, really cheap, as opposed to like spending 20 grand on a on a brand lift study that happens, you know, three weeks after the campaign is over. What are you guys seeing in terms of trials now? What's the, what are the kind of numbers you're seeing in terms of uplift? When you say numbers, um, which there's a lot of them, which ones are you? Yeah, totally. It's <laughs> a good, good question. I mean, sort of, as you start to think through how people move from one bucket to another, I would say down the purchase funnel toward actually converting are you seeing, you know, sort of double digit percentage shifts from bucket to bucket, things it, like that? It very there's nothing it so it varies very much from campaign to campaign. What's great about uh, what we do is that we can cut the data in a lot of different ways. So we can look at 
um, how a campaign performed versus competitors. We can look how a campaign performed against a category average. We can look at how a campaign performed in comedies versus dramas, how it performed uh, in this day part versus that day part, um, how it performed on CTV versus mobile versus desktop. So we, you know, we've been able to really tease out some interesting insights on a campaign level basis, but also aggregate it up um, on a on an aggregate basis. And I would, you know, just to share one big one, and it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone. But CTV performs really, really well, better than desktop and mobile. Oh, um, yes. And it's a far more lean back, uh, experience, engaged experience. Yeah. Well, lean, lean back and engaged are sort of opposite. Lean, lean in is what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it's good, you know, it's always good to have data to confirm what you suspect is true because sometimes what you suspect is not true. So you guys are in the process of running the engagement business, you're launching a new product, and there's things to get done. How has the company done in a shift from being in an office with an open floor plan to this diasporatic, everybody's in their own little space type thing? Yeah. Are you guys, how are you guys functioning? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And the fact that you use the word diasporatic, I, kudos. <laughs> I'm reading a book about the <laughs> about Amos Oz and the Jewish diaspora. So okay. It was on your mind. Um, so we were always, uh, you know, we were a startup that was purchased by Fox and we never really fully integrated into Fox. We retained um, our own infrastructure and then Fox was purchased by Disney. And so we were never really integrated into Disney. We retained our own infrastructure. So we've always been a Zoom, Slack, G Suite shop. And it was relatively straightforward for us to turn into uh, a working from home um, approach. And I think if, if I was on Outlook and Office, it would have been a lot harder. The other question that I have, are, are people still getting the same amount of juice out of the lemon? It's one thing to work from home when it's a choice, and it's sort of another thing to work from home during a pandemic when there's myriad other complexities to your life, I guess, depending on how young or old you are. Yeah. You know, I think the challenge a lot of people are finding is how do you set the right boundaries? Because uh, it's fairly easy to do in a, in a normal Formal time frame, so but. I'll share with you my own experience and then talk about it a little more broadly. And, and I think I'm somewhat atypical, right? Because I don't have little kids at home who I need to take care of. Um, so I'm not mad at, you know, I'm not balancing childcare and, and work. Um, and the work I do is almost entirely knowledge worker work. And I can kind of do it, you know, from a laptop anywhere. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of freer than most, I suspect. Not having said that, I am definitely not as productive at home as I am, as I was in the office. There's distractions. There's the refrigerator. <laughs> that's um, a big one. That's a big one. Um, but, you know, on, so in the sort of in the work hour, the normal work hours, I am definitely not as productive. Like my dog comes over and says, "Hey, you know, let's play ball." And yeah, mine's I, sitting next to me now. Yeah, yeah. And who am I to say no? Um, on the other hand, I do feel like my my work hours never end. I, I'm much more likely, given that I'm working in in less consistently during the normal work hours, to work during non-normal work hours. And so it's not unusual for me to be doing stuff at ten o'clock at night 
where when I had a, a more defined day and in a defined location, I wouldn't be. Do you think that points to, and this is just, I'm asking pure opinion here. Do you think that points to a change in behavior for how people work forever? Yes, I do. Because when I talk to um, friends in other shops in senior positions, they're all talking about how their CFOs are gleaming with the idea of reducing the amount of, of office expense and having people work at home more and even setting up rotations where you can only be in the office on Monday and Wednesday and someone else can only be in the office on Tuesday and Thursday and there's no assigned desks and you know we can lop off a couple of floors from our real estate expense and that'll make you know the bottom line that much rosier. So I, I think that this is going to be a catalyst to all kinds of changes. And I'm not sure it's actually good overall for productivity. I, I think that it, in my little company, it works because we've all been working together so closely for now. But when you onboard new people, how do you inculturate them? How do they build the personal relationships that are essential to being effective inside an organization? And the, in a you know, in a big company, that's even harder, right? And, co- and corporate culture is a real thing. And if everybody's remote, it's much harder to, um, it's much harder to, to spread that corporate culture out across your org. Um, I, I did listen to and a, a read, half listen, half read, an interesting interview um, uh, with a company that is almost entirely remote. And they have several events during the year where everybody comes together and those events last a full week. And they, and they see that as essential to um, establishing the personal connections that are necessary for the company to function. Of course, they can't do that now. So it'll be interesting to see if some hybrid version of coming in, but not as much with big events to try and uh, become the big events to become cultural markers for a company sort of evolves out of this, but I kind of think that's where we're going. Yeah, I, I tend to agree um, with almost everything there. I, you know, I'm finding the same thing with my work hours. They shift and move quite a bit. Um, the middle of the day becomes a little weird. You know, it's prime time bandwidth usage here at <laughs> 2 p.m. or whatever. You know, so sometimes we get overloaded even with a you know a signal booster and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, you know, and I, I think people will start to, when they're allowed to, come together in like a grassroots, let's have a mini meeting here at the coffee shop, or there's a shared workspace we can bump into for half an hour to really get something done. But the idea of going from three floors to one, for instance, as it, as it takes a freewheel, has to be something they're thinking about. It, it yeah. doesn't feel like the future of commercial real estate is all that, all that rosy. But look, you and I are both in sales in, so, in some sense. We, there's just no question that the face-to-face is more effective than the electronic connection, even the, the Zoom connection. And that I think that insight applies to lots and lots of business process. <laughs> Face-to-face is better in, in many ways. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much we give up moving to a more diasporatized. <laughs> <laughs> You're um, going to nounify it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> diasporatized model. Because um, we are definitely going to be giving stuff up. 
Yeah, for sure. There's, I mean, there's the corporate culture you touched on, but there's also how do you, pl- how does somebody who comes on board actually plug in mm-hmm. to that corporate culture and then yeah. figure out whether they even fit that corporate culture? Right. Because at the end of the day, and this is, you know, this is ties back to what we were talking about before. I've always felt that it wasn't the class, it was the professor, right? It's not the subject matter, it's who. It's the who, who, you know, who's teaching it. It's, it's not the job, it's who your boss is, right? Which is why I'm with Pooja in, in Truex. Um, and how do you get that? How do you figure that out if you're remote? It's, it's very, very difficult. I, I think remote is working now because of how closely I've worked with people in person for however long, right? Um, but you know, if you if you take the underpinning of all the prior knowledge you have about how somebody functions um, in a workday and how well you click with them, it, it does get problematic. Yeah. Um, so it there will be, I think, some hybrid. But I I, I completely agree. I definitely think things are going to change a bit. I agree. And so here's another twist. I wonder if at the same time as we move to more people spending more time remote. We also move away from open office plans and back to offices because they are much more sanitary. That's I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I actually, you know, the open office plan, we've had this conversation probably a million times um, that, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? You yeah. can find anyone you want anytime you want, but they can find you anytime they want, um, you know, but I, you're right. You know, there's only, I sit very, very close to the person who sits next to me. And so on and so on and so on down the line across, you know, a massively open floor plan. So that, that'll be an interesting twist well, too. I mean, look, if, if we all had offices with walls and doors, then the risk of transmitting infection is reduced. No question, right? No doubt about it. Right. And it's easy. And if somebody does get sick and says, you know, calls in and says, oh my God, I'm sick. I'm not coming in today. You can send the hazmat crew into the office and sterilize it and you've solved for a fair amount of the issue. Okay. So here's my final question that we're going to close on. I always come up with a final question. I try to. So peak prime time playing ability. Now, who wins a one-on-one basketball match? Earl Monroe or Bernard King? Oh, wow. Great question. Uh, and I thought, oh my God, he's going to give me the Michael versus LeBron thing. I can't believe he's going. <laughs> oh God, forget about that. I can't even. Yeah, Earl and Bernard. Good enough, Michael Jordan, to last me for the rest of my life. One on one, Earl and Bernard. All right, I got to go, Bernard. And here's why: because Bernard King in the post was so strong. He he really was a banger. And I don't think Earl had the physical strength to 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 defend against that. I think Bernard would just back him down and, and, and either turn around or, you know, or slip it in. Um, now Earl was a little quicker than Bernard and a little stronger from the outside Bernard, but I think Bernard's D was up to the task. So I got to go with Bernard, but that's, that is a great question. I mean, cause they were such similar players, right? They had such similar games minus the post game. But yeah, but the, what the, I will the say game is, is the post game is the key. Well, Bernard King also had four inches on Earl Monroe or something like that. Yeah. He, he was much taller. Um, so, but uh, my, my brother, who I consider the expert on all things uh, Nick history, would love this question. And so I'm going to pass it on to him and I'll tell you the answer. Text me offline. And um, when I do the closing of this, I will tell everyone what your brother said. <laughs> okay. 
All right. Listen, man, this was amazing. Thank you for spending a, a really awesome 45 minutes with me. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. It was so much fun. And anytime. Rick did check in with his brother, New York Knicks aficionado Drew Mandler, who said, quote, King is taller and stronger and almost as quick, so he gets my vote. If only we'd had a healthy King when Patrick arrived. King destroyed Bird one-on-one. Would have been a hell of a rivalry, unquote. I once heard Rick say he believes Miles Davis' Kind of Blue is the best album of all time, so here's Freddie Freeloader to play us out. See you next time.